Andy is taking the day off today, and we're so glad to have Barry Strands back with us. It's a pleasure to be here, Danny. Merry Always. Christmas to you and your family. And to you, too. I Ooh. hope your season is starting out great. Now, I was just thinking, just thought crossed my mind uh, of, of having just a couple kids, you know, three kids. <laughs> yep. You have... You have, I have like, eleven. You, you do. I, I still, I, still. Yep. What all was them. what was the holiday like when all the kids were growing up? Chaotic <laughs> in the most amazing and wonderful way. I was committed to the idea that my children should learn to give. I wanted them to learn to be givers. So how do you do that with a four year old? And it's like we we don't have a budget to go out and spend massive amounts of money or give them lots of money. So our plan was to say, all right, you guys, I want you to give something to your brothers and sisters. And we will fund a trip to the dollar store. And so we would give them enough so that they could buy presents for all for of their brothers else. and sisters. Yeah. And, and they had to go pick it and then we'd pay for it, but at the dollar store. And it was hysterical to watch them. But I sat uh, two Christmases ago and just and watched what had evolved now out of their own hearts as they had chosen to do Secret Santa just to kind of focus energy in one place because it's a lot to to dress 10 siblings, you know. (laughs) And uh, it was marvelous to see what had occurred in them and their their deep desire to bless their brothers and sisters with a gift that had meaning and it was thoughtful. And I sat there for about two hours just watching because we would watch everybody unwrap. It's it's a a marathon of unwrapping presents at my house on Christmas. But it's the most amazing thing to see what happens when people get a mindset that says it's about others and not about me. Just such a beautiful thing to watch and to feel like uh, the decisions we made when they were little have had some kind of impact on that. Uh, just really powerful thing. It's, it's lovely. I did, love Christmas did, at our house. I don't know if I've ever asked you this. Did you, in, when you were growing up, did you have siblings? Yeah, I've got five brothers and sisters. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. And hopefully at least one of them's listening <laughs> today. <laughs> <laughs> one who lives in the, in the Twin Cities area. Oh, okay, because so they're, they're spread around. Yeah, spread mm-hmm. out there, yeah. Kansas and, and, and uh, uh, in California. I can say California, I think. Yes, you can. That's legal. <laughs> yes. Uh, if you have any kind of a home improvement question, in fact, why don't you try and call and stump our friend Barry here? Stump the contractor. Yeah, do sure. that. He's been in the business just a few years. A few now, since 1972. So, yeah. hands on. So, And then teaching for over 30 years, I've been teaching, which is crazy to think about. Absolutely always, nuts. When to we first met, that. I always found it interesting that you teach, I understand when you're teaching. You know, other contractors and stuff, but you teach real estate agents. Yep, and, and appraisers too. Yeah, yeah. And the fun part about that is when you get into a classroom setting and they're are there for their license hours, they need to update their license. So they're not particularly interested in even what the topic is. So you, they're like, I got to take a class. They just got to go through. I got to get, yeah, you know, I'm going to read my newspaper. I'm going to figure out my schedule. I'm going to, you know, look at my phone. And my whole goal was to see if I can't hook them in the first 45 minutes. And try to really address making class, I, I call it infotainment, which was the idea that they have to have information, but they have to be liking it too. Yeah, yeah. So you can't read to them out of a code book and have anybody stay present to you. So um, because I've lived this in the business, I tell stories alongside with the code. And it's like, well, you know what? It's, it ends up being at least engaging. And then I try to get class interaction and discussion. In one class, we were talking about some appraisal issues, and I raised some frustrations that I had heard from realtors out loud in class, and the appraisers were all, they were going to rebut 
that irritation. Oh. But then I had realtors in the class too. That guy, no, no, no. Barry's right. That's how we feel. And then the contractors are like, yeah, but we put all this money into stuff and you guys don't appraise it. And then you guys who sell it, you know, have no idea how it's actually built and why it's more valuable. And it was a, the class really interactive. By. Oh, yeah. like, you're mean. It's time to go home already. That's crazy. This was so much fun. So if you can get people going into a good froth, you know, presentation uh, is everything. It, well, it was a lot of fun. So. Well, yeah. again, uh, Barry, uh, but you've been in the business with, well, I mean, you're a carpenter, you're... Hands-on. You know, Danny, yeah. I've always felt like it's helpful. In fact, we, we've discussed it as contractors in class numerous times. What if architects were required to spend three years working in the jobs before they could actually become nationally certified? Because the idea of theory versus actually building something that works gets really shifted when you see how parts and pieces come together. So we start thinking about, you know, look, this is a load transfer and an architect is trained in loads and they're trained in materials and strengths, et cetera. But they're not always trained in the practical application of how that gets assembled in the field. So they can draw something that looks great in two dimensions and then you can put it into CAD and get it into three and it still looks great. The challenge is how do you actually assemble it? And if they can't figure that out, that becomes the battlefield for those of us in the field who actually have to build it. Yeah. So, you know, it's a challenge to help people understand some things look great, but actually building them is, is a real particular challenge. And, you know, you go from the perspective of assembly, and, and that's how I've seen myself, from ceramic tile to uh, stonework, uh, framing, obviously, and finished carpentry and floor coverings. And, you know, I've done my own house. And then in... Minneapolis, you can't do your own gas hookups, but I set my own furnace and my own plumbing and, and, and in, in my own house, I wired it. And then Minneapolis had to come in and inspect it. That was back before state did inspections. Now state runs electrical inspections. But, you know, it was like I talked to the electrical inspector in Minneapolis and he said, you know, he said the reason that we allow homeowners to do their own electrical work on homes they own and occupy now is because most homeowners don't want to burn the house down with them living in it. Yeah. You know, so they're very, actually very careful. Yeah. Yeah. And he looked at my work and he said, man, this is better than most of the contractors I see. And I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm paranoid that you're going to come through here and find something wrong. So, you know, and I had one box and it had too, too many wires in this gang box and I had to change that out. So, you know, I, I didn't do it perfectly correct, but it was a great learning experience. And again, I've said it on the air before. I think the best learning is making mistakes, but you do right. want to make the mistakes that don't have the kind of consequences that could be you know, hor- horrific. Sure. You know, that's the key to in my mind. So practice on something on your own pr- place. Start with framing uh, and be careful with saws. So you're not cutting fingers yeah. off and that yeah. kind of thing. So, but, but, but learn by doing. I think there's a great benefit of that. Very good. Call uh, Barry or text, uh, send Barry a text, 651. Same number, by the way, applies to both phone calls and text, 651 989 Nine two two six. Barry Strands in for Andy Lindis today, and uh, I tell you what, as usual, we have callers, we have texts. Uh, let's uh, let's go to Carver. I think Lisa is there with a question. Lisa, good morning. Good morning. Um, we are getting a new fridge, which I'm really excited about, but it's a little taller than our old fridge, and so my husband, we thought, you know, we looked inside the cabinet above it. And we, we thought, oh, yeah, there's just some screws holding it up. We can slide this whole thing up a little bit. But then we took all the screws out, and something's still holding it. So <laughs> do you have any ideas? Well, my bet is that the cabinet adjacent to it, it's still screwed to that. Did you okay. check those locations? And sometimes that's done in the we face did. frame behind the hinges. Okay. 
So, oh, okay, with those weird little... Yeah, take the hinge, just check, because really talented trim carpenters would screw cabinet face frames together, they pull the door hinges off, screw behind the hinge, and that way the, the screws are invisible. You don't notice that they're there. Ah, and that okay. would be a way... The first thing, that's the first thing I would check. If you pulled all the visible screws out, that's the first point I would check. But you're on to the right okay. concept of what you're trying to do there. Interesting. Lisa, so yeah. good for you. Try that and see if it doesn't work. Because if all... I mean, if the screws are gone, the cabinet will come free. Now, if it's been okay. stained or painted on the face at the joints between adjacent cabinets, that can lock things in. You have to kind of rock that or jam that loose. But I think it's probably screw still in place. Okay. Right. Best wishes to you, dear. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Lisa. Thanks very much. Uh, she leaves that line open, 651-989-9226. You want to call in your or text Barry. We're going to take a break. Oh, so, great. So hang on. We'll uh, talk more. Maybe we'll uh, talk a little bit this time of year about uh, ve- uh, ventilation and insulation and yeah. all that stuff. We'll talk about ventilation and air stuff. It's good. All right. Let's do that. Call us or text us here on the Home Improvement Show brought to us by Linda's Construction. And good morning. Welcome back to our Home Improvement Show brought to us by Linda's Construction, L-I-N-D-U-S, 1-800-LEAF-CARD. If you want to uh, give them a call this uh, this coming week, I'm sure all the crews are out there working in spite of the weather. The weather. Yeah, sure. yeah. Most guys are out there just having a grand old time in this weather. Oh, <laughs> we're, we're so goodness. grateful for thermal uh, clothing. Uh, what a gift! Layers and layers. Yes. All right, we have callers. Oh, we have Texas Barry. Let's uh, let's go to the phones. Greg is calling from uh, Burnsville, I believe. Greg, you're on with Barry. Morning, Greg. Well, th- well, thank you very much for taking the call. And uh, Barry, you're doing a great job. But I do have a question for you. Uh, the uh, I've got a dark. Uh, brown house with brown gutters and sometimes I've taken the drain spout out uh, the part that goes off the off the house and stretches out into the yard other times I've left it on I just noticed that uh, the one in front of the house is packed with ice and I do have the drain spout on is it best to take those things off in the fall just before the snow flies you know so that you don't get ice accumulation or do you want to let them stay on so that when the sun hits that dark brown gutter uh it maybe increases the heat to 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 melt it i think that there's two theories about that one uh, the rain leaders down on the ground i would take off and everything else i would leave up so the vertical standpipe should stay up and then the rain leader on the ground should stay cut should come off that's not my personal first choice but on the high-end house where i work or have worked the challenge has always been how do you do that when you have multiple stories and you can't afford to have ice build up in the gutter because it's going to affect the roof eventually and so they'll use what they call heat tape which basically is a wire that's connected to power that just does enough to melt a hole where the wire runs to keep the gutters running freely and in a high-end home, they'll drop those down into a collection box at the base of the gutter so there's no downspout that's connected to a rain leader that pushes across the surface of the grass, but it runs into a box down below. And we've actually run heat tape, these wires, down inside the whole drain box and then all the way out to the point of release in the yard mm. 50 or 75 feet away. The problem is that stuff is really expensive. And it's not terrible use of power, but it's the way to keep your gutters solved. And I've seen this in gutters on driveways where you've got a a negative pitch coming off the road and you have to drop down into the garage area and there's a a drain 
box on the driveway itself. The only way to keep that free-flowing is to actually run this heat wire cable in it to move that water away. So ideally, there's a way to do that that actually solves the problem and keeps the water flowing. Uh, in reality, when most of us can't afford that, it wouldn't be in my budget, certainly. We end up trying to find another way. So I, to, to me, the rain leader comes off, bounce bout stays up in place, and we'll let the heat do its thing. Okay. Very good. I was trying to picture, I don't know what you'd call it, but gutters, when they're put on a house, have to be put on a certain level so it drains, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're going to come. I mean, the gutters are pitching at the roof line. Pitching, that's and, the word. Yep, and that pitch, it's very slight. You know, I'm not sure if I can even remember the number, but on a 20-foot run, you're probably dropping an inch to inch and a quarter or something like that. And then we're moving that down. And, if you, again, once that fills up with ice, it's not going to drain at all. So mm-hmm. people try salting that, and I'm not saying that doesn't work, but, you know, it's a caustic that you'll end up getting into your garden eventually. So it's worth trying a couple other things. All right, very good. Good luck with that, uh, Greg. Uh, let's talk to Tom, who's calling from uh, Forest Lake, I believe. Tom, you're on CCO. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I've got a problem with cement blocks spalding on the outside. Yeah. You got a solution? Not a great one. I One of the first things I ever did once I was off on my own as a carpenter was I went to my father-in-law's house, and he had the same situation. And it was probably 19, early 50s, 52, 53 build. And the combination of the moisture around the foundation makes it very, very difficult. So topical patching compounds are available. Uh, but if you can get the water away, you'll you'll stop the problem from happening. So one of my recommendations today is a thing called grade metal, which is a um, powder-coated metal material that would cover the block and keep the water off the surface. And you can buy that at metal fabricators. And it gets cut to size, essentially, and you drop it down below the grade, tuck it up underneath your siding, uh, and be able to cover up all the spalding concrete block. So topical choices are available, and some guys will actually put stucco mesh on those and will coat those with a cementitious stucco-like product over the top of those to keep the water off of the concrete block. But the block gets softer over time. I would protect it with a metal or fiberglass would work as well, but you're trying to keep the water off that service so that it doesn't get worse each year. All right, very good. Thanks, Tom. Let's uh, talk to uh, Roger, who's calling from uh, St. Cloud this morning. Roger, you're on CCO. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I know I have a insulation problem. I've got icicles uh, forming on the edge of my roof. Uh, my living area is colder than uh, the bedroom areas. I I believe I have a vaulted ceiling. This construction was in like a 1985 era. I'm just wondering. I was calling actually to ask for a ether. Uh, what is it that you would call that uh, energy audit? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, and I know Lindus has been doing that. So if yeah. you can call them and ask them. They'll come out, and they were doing a free energy audit. So they'll shoot that surface and find the temperature differentiations there, and that will help you know where the losses are taking place. And you say it's a vaulted ceiling? R- Roger, is that correct? Yes. Um, the challenge with vaults in the 1980s, let's say it's early 80s to mid-80s, likely that's a uh, truss 
scenario, and those trusses didn't provide that much space for insulation, particularly near the outside wall location. And oftentimes that was blown in cellulose as the material. And whether there was a high enough volume of insulation is always the question, but that we get the heat migrating from convection to the top of that roof location means that we have the highest concentration of warm air in the home on that vaulted ceiling. And now you'll see, of course, that higher concentration of heat actually working its way through the assembly of insulation up past the decking and onto the roof surface, melting that under snow cover, and you exacerbate the ice dam problem. And again, remember, it's always two issues that cause ice dams. It's a lack of insulation and a lack of ventilation. And there are some ice dams that cannot be solved because they're only taking place as a result of solar radiation activity. So ice dams are, I mean, I, I did a treatment on this about a 20-page document on ice dam causes. I've done research for class, and it's a fascinating thing to understand what's really going on. Not all ice dams are caused by lack of insulation, but it sounds very much like yours is, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, but the audit's the way to go. That way you'll know exactly what's yep. going on and what to do to solve it. Give me a call, Roger, 1-800-LEAFGUARD, 1-800-LEAFGUARD. Barry, we need to take a break. We have another half hour of the show to go. If you have any kind of a home improvement question, this is the guy you want to chat with or text to. That number is the same. Six five one nine eight nine nine two two six. And good morning. Welcome back to our home improvement show. If you have that kind of a question, you can call it in or text it in to Barry Strands and uh, who's filling in for Andy, by the way, today. Six five one nine eight nine nine two two six is the number uh, you need to remember. That's a one. great number. Remember and call us. <laughs> That's six five one nine eight nine WCCO. I love that. Yeah. I didn't plan on that, but that wasn't my idea. I wish you could see this guy over here, the silver fox sitting there with his headphones on. This is just fun to be around him. He's so great. It's a lieu of a race. I blame you. Jerry in St. Paul is calling Hi, Jerry. Hey, Jerry. Yes, sir, gentlemen. Uh, Barry, I have a question about making a a built-in oven. Is that something, probably not a do-it-yourselfer job, but... Uh, is it? Can any contractor just come in and, and build you a built-in oven in your kitchen? Uh, creating the frame for the built-in is just basic cabinetry work. So, yes, you're just going to need to make sure that you know if you've got a gas oven or electric oven or a combo and make sure you have the proper mechanicals. But, yeah, they're not complicated to do, but you need to know what the weight is. And the built-in ovens, problem is most of these slide-in ovens are very heavy, so you have to have the proper structural support for them. So, yeah, but it's doable. And I do think you're right. It's outside the range of a typical do-it-yourselfer. Yeah, probably. Now, some have got carpentry skills. They could handle it, but cabinet makers are who you want to talk to first. Very good. Thank you, Jerry. Jerry leaves the line open, 651-989-9226. We're going to grab some text messages, but in the meantime, Jack in Stillwater has a question. Jack, what's your question? Hi, I've got a a detached um, garage with a bonus room uh, over it, and I'm planning on uh, uh, finishing it off and heating it. And I had an uh, insulation person come out and uh, pointed out that there's really not a lot of airflow from eaves. The eaves are not designed to have, like, you know, the airflow that... uh, Sure typically have so he recommended what he called a hot roof which is uh, spraying in foam right against the roof and my question is i talked to somebody else that said well don't know if you want to do that with shingles on the roof because that might get real hot uh, and too hot for the shingles so i'm not really sure which which way i should go sure jack the hot roof controversy has been around for quite some time and the research comes in kind of this way Uh, if you have adequate ventilation from eave to ridge that's the best 
but second best is no ventilation whatsoever and then doing a hot roof. The, the big argument is that we have roofing manufacturers who require ventilation for their warranty length to be f- established. So because the heat buildup happens as a result of no ventilation above the insulation, uh, and the roof deck gets warmer than normal, and you'll do what I call short-lived roof application. So if you have a 30-year shingle, you're probably going to get 20 years out of it. If you have a 40-year, you probably get 30 years out of it. So there'll be a reduction in the life of the shingle. That's true with asphalt. Not true with metals, of course, but uh, I don't know that that's the number one consideration, frankly. I, I think that a hot roof has a lot of benefits going for it, especially from the cost that you address relative to heat. If you can't get adequate insulation in a space, you're going to be blowing heat up out of that roof, even if you ventilate it. So if you go to a hot roof, what you save in in insulation costs or energy costs every winter, I think more than covers the cost of the re-roof life change that you get, the reduction in life. In my mind, the hot roof is the way to go in the application you're describing. All right. Very good, Jack. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Uh, Texter says this, they have a new house. The sump pump runs regularly. How often do you recommend replacing the pump? Do you have a recommended brand? Uh, it says I have a battery backup. Okay, well, that sounds like someone's been paying attention. The yeah. issue with the sump is going to be about water table, water height flow, those kinds of things. And the problem, of course, is most pumps are going to run intermittently. So they'll run a couple of times and then they shut off. We don't see them running for a while. And based on rainfall or spring thaw, et cetera. But if you're on a high water table location around a lake, it's possible that your pumps are running all the time. We had one homeowner on Minnetonka, and his pumps were really not shutting off. He ended up having to go to a second sump basket after the crawl space flooded. It just overwhelmed the sump pump and went to a second sump pump and then went to an industrial pump that was about 1500 bucks. So very expensive, but then runs dual sump pumps and has to change them every three years because wow. of the demand on these pumps, even though they are industrial design. So the hard part is to know the volume a person has, but recognize that if they're running all the time, you're at a water table problem location, and I would look at replacing them every third year. Can't remember the brand that. Uh, uh, no, and I don't like being brand specific on I, air I anyway. Agree. But but um, I would go to a plumber and I would say I need to know if you're familiar with high end uh, pumps for sump systems and what do you recommend? And then if they work Minnetonka, where most of the high water table lies in the Stuart area, that's probably a, a plus. Talk to someone who's used to working around the Big Lake, and you'll get better information. You can call Barry. You can text him if you have any kind of a home improvement question, 651-989-9226. Well, here we are in the winter. Well, not technically, but outside it is. Uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about the ventilation. Uh, you've mentioned it twice already or three yeah. times. Uh, what, what's... It comes up. I mean, there's yeah. a whole host of things to think about relative to the way air moves in buildings. And I was stunned. I got invited to sit on the Minnesota Energy Code Advisory Committee to help give a remodeler's perspective of code information. And so to do that, I had to get into class and I'm listening to some of the great minds in the energy world, some of the guys from the University of Minnesota and some guys started their own companies. And as I'm learning stuff, I'm recognizing that there's an entirely different way to view what takes place in the house because I had bought the same line that most consumers and in my experience, most realtors have that houses are too tight today. And then if they weren't making them so tight, we wouldn't have these moisture problems, we wouldn't have these mold problems, all of that. And it seemed plausible uh, when I was thinking about that before I began to understand that houses aren't supposed to breathe through the walls and through the attic space. 
It's not, it's not designed. And, and then I would get this reaction as I began to present this information. People would say, well, yeah, but the old houses didn't have these problems. And I would then start to research, well, why not? And then you began to recognize that around 1900, if you have a house built at the turn of the century, mm-hmm. you know, 100 years ago, you have to recognize that the windows in those homes, the doors in those homes weren't weather stripped very well. And if you've got single pane glass double hung with a storm sash on the exterior, that thing leaks like a sieve. And so you've got your curtains closed and the door or windows are locked. And yet you'll watch the curtains. When there's wind outside, you'll watch the curtains moving around. And you're like, well, what what does that mean? So they began to do calculations. And the average home at about 1,000 square feet back in 1900 would have the equivalent of two whole house air changes per hour. Wow. That means we're turning the entire volume of air over inside a home every 30 minutes. Now, that's, that's insane. That's ridiculous because it's all coming in through windows, doors, leaks into the attic space, those kinds of things. And now the house is self-ventilating. The problem, of course, is that air, air is all coming in unconditioned. And by that, I mean it's not heated or in the summertime it's not cooled. So that air, as it's coming in, it's coming in at ambient exterior temperatures. We have to heat that and it's horribly inefficient. So we begin to change the way we build. We begin to add insulation. But that incrementally changed. So if you're looking at the 40s and 50s, you're probably getting an R value of 7 in your exterior walls. You move into the 70s and we're putting in R11 insulation. You move into the 90s and you're putting in R13 insulation. You move into the 2000 realm and it's now up to R19. And now current code is R20 in the exterior wall of the building. So as houses start to insulate exterior walls differently and air seal them, oftentimes with plastic, but certainly airtight drywall as well, you wind up not letting the walls breathe. And people are freaking out, like, oh, the house is too tight. So when I was working in the 70s, my grandfather would, he would take the plastic vapor retarder we put on the ceiling of the house and he'd poke it with a big, long screwdriver. Like that was going to help. And he's thinking, well, the houses are getting so tight, we'll let water vapor migrate up into the attic space. But nobody was paying attention that when it's seven below zero, like it will be tonight, that, that vapor we're letting into the attic if it can't ventilate out the roof vent system, which might be buried under snow, it's going to find the coldest surface in that space, and it's going to condense and go into freeze condition frost. So you'll go up into a lot of attics tonight. If you were to walk into an attic, you'd see stalactites hanging off the little <laughs> roofing nails all over the attic space when there's a vapor bleed into the attic area. So we need our lid, the ceiling of that house, to be tighter. But now we're like, well, now we're not turning the air over. The air can get stale. It can get... Um, less healthy. Yeah. So what do you do? Well, you put in a set of lungs. And so what we're talking about now is a, a benefit to having ventilation air taking place inside the home. And so that's what air exchange systems were designed to do. So heat recovery ventilators are systems that ventilate the house, but they recap heat. They gain heat back. So the outgoing air, which was warm, gives its heat to the fresh air coming in. And as that air exchanges, we wind up with preheated fresh air coming into the home. So if it goes out at 75, it comes in at 52. And now we have air we're heating from 52 to 75, not from seven below below, to 75. And so the load on the furnace to heat pre-warmed air is much reduced than to heat cold air into the house. Does that make sense as an idea? Oh, yeah, yeah, it all does. Well, that's just one aspect of the home system. Let's talk more about that. And we have uh, some text messages and callers, too. The callers on the line don't... You guys matter most. Don't go away. We'll uh, we'll get those questions answered in just a moment or two. And welcome back to our home improvement show, brought to us by Lindus Construction, L I N D U S. Andy's taking the day off today. Barry Strands is filling in for uh, Andy today, answering your questions. And we still have a bunch 
So, Barry, let's get to it. I think, uh, let's see who's been waiting there. Um, Tim is calling from uh, Oak Grove. Uh, Tim, you're on CCO with Barry. Morning, Tim. Yeah, hi. Good morning. Um, My wife and I are going to be heading south for the winter for the first time, and I'm wondering about how to properly shut down the house for the three months we'll be gone. I'm trying to drain the water pipes in the basement. I disconnect everything I can, and I get the one... One pipe keeps dripping water for like five hours later. It's still getting one drip every minute or so. And the water shut off on that? Yeah, I'm on a well and septic, and I shut the shut the yeah. pump off at the breaker, and that pump that tank goes down to zero, and then I close that that valve. Yeah. And well, it seems like that's right where it's dripping. Yeah, it still might be an airlock of some kind that's holding some water in that line, so that's a slow drip. Or it could be that the valve seal's not perfect 100%. That doesn't scare me so much. As it, does the house have a dehumidifier in it right now? Um, a dehumidifier? No, I'm sorry. I misspoke. A humidifier? Well, no. That we're, no. It, okay. It has, yes, it has one... For the furnace, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm just looking at that. Sometimes when you, we, we, we evacuate and we don't recognize that we're going to let that house dry way down and things will come back and you'll see gaps and cracks and, and separation of wood because we didn't maintain humidity levels. That's very, very common when people don't oh, okay. maintain humidity. So we've had people who've left and we've had them keep their humidifier running and then the fan for the furnace blows the moisture into the home. We keep heat at proper temperature, but we also add moisture. So that's the one thing about shutting all the water down is you can't humidify. Now, if it's a leak there that's coming from that pump, I, I think you're probably still looking at residual water. I don't think that's a, a I don't think that's a problem necessarily with the leak in the valve, but that'd be worth checking to see. And even if so, if it was dripping like that, as long as a collection and you got a floor drain, it wouldn't be the end of the world. The other thing that I think is really wise when you're leaving is to have a, a meter in the home or a, a, what's sometimes called a water bug, which can evaluate whether there's a leak in the pipe, pipe of some kind. Because if you turn the heat down enough. On the exterior walls, when it gets super cold outside, you run the risk of having something freeze. And that's something I would be paying attention to, too. So, yeah. Right. You know, I never took the water out of the tank and the toilet, and I'm thinking that line can't evacuate then if it's if the tank is still full. Should I empty that water tank or the toilet tank? Well, as long as you're maintaining temperature, I don't think that's a concern. I'm not worried about that. That keeps water in the line, solves some of the backdrafting issues with odors. So... I wouldn't have a problem with water being in the toilet tank as long as you're keeping your house at 52 or 55 degrees. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right, Tim. Well, good luck. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Safe, mm-hmm. safe yeah. travels. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. They'll have be, fun. Enjoy be, the sun. They'll be thinking about that dripping water all the yeah, time. I, yeah. I, I, again, I, there's just not enough information what was, to What was able the to thing know. you called again? Uh, the water? A water bug. A water bug. I think mean, that's a specific brand. Right. Basically, it's a... We, we put them underneath people's kitchen sinks. Uh, we put them in their bathrooms. It's a monitor, right? It's a monitor. For, yeah. mm-hmm. And it's typically connected to Wi-Fi so that yeah. there's a monitoring company, and if there's a signal of water presence, they get notified, and someone can run over to the house and make sure there's not some kind of disaster. All right. Uh, Mike is calling in from Edina, I do believe. Mike, you're on CCO. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning, Barry. Hi, Mike. Hey, I've, got a, I've got a 1945 house with a tuck-under garage. Okay. The garage isn't well insulated but the garage above the garage doors it's got like weep holes and i've got a two over uh, about a two foot overhang which which my bedroom is over the garage what are those weep holes for if if that overhang is insulated describe the weep holes to me one more time tim because they're, 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 they're actually holes above the garage doors inside the garage that go into that 
that go into the overhangs, overhang space. Okay, so it, they're horizontal on the sidewall above the garage door header? Yes. And they go yes. into that space. I've never yes. seen it, so I'm just thinking through why it might be the motivation. So that's not something I'm... I'm assuming that's related to ventilation of that overhang location. I mean, I don't know what else but, it would be. But why, why, why would I need ventilation if that's all insulated? Where, where Correct. do I even get I don't know. ventilation? Yeah, okay. exactly. So I, I, so, so I should just plug those? If it's an eyebrow there. roof, I mean, I wish I could see a photo of it, but if it's an eyebrow that's, that's separated, the problem is a lot of the framing that was done at that era ran the, yeah. the lumber back up into the wall cavity itself to attach it to the yeah. exterior wall. So now you might have penetration from that overhang that would actually have a passageway into the exterior wall of the home along that bedroom. So I don't know exactly what's going on. I, I don't think you'll hurt yourself to seal those up. I, I don't think that'll be a problem. The bigger question is how that airflow was maintained from the eave overhang up into the exterior wall of the building. If you could get access to that, I'd foam it, but I don't think you have I don't think it's probably worth it. And in that era home, there's enough micro leaks. I don't think you have anything to really worry about if you plug them. All right. Uh, Barry, we have a couple of minutes to go. Let's grab some text messages before uh, you take your leave. Here's one. We need to replace vinyl flooring in our kitchen and are looking for recommendations. Kitchen goes directly into the garage, so looking for durable but washable surface. And besides that, the floor may not be level. Well, my first thought is the question came, Danny, was that the, the luxury vinyl plank is fabulous. It really looks like, if you like wood, it looks like wood. It's certainly durable. The battlefield is the floor. The manufacturers require the floor to be leveled if they're going to do the install for you. In fact, most floor manufacturer installation requirements require super, super tight tolerances on floors being level. And very few houses actually have a floor that meets that. But do-it-yourselfers can handle it. And you can use self-leveling compound on those as an underbed to level the floor first. But I'm pulling that existing vinyl up. I just think it should get out of there. That way you can assess what you have as your subfloor and underlayment. And then I would look at luxury vinyl tile. It's got a wonderful price point. looks good. It's durable as it can be. And it would be perfect to come into the, the mudroom area off the garage. So that's my choice. And uh, a texter is agreeing with you. You were talking about the ventilation and insulation. Oh, but, good. Uh, what about the ceiling they should be done around can lights? Well, in the world I live in, every can light gets a box made out of foil-faced foam that gets sealed to typically drywall and then uh, that creates an airspace around the can so the can is not going to let air past this foil box but it can have heat off uh, moving away from it. Uh, today, if you use an LED bulb, all bets are off. You don't have to worry about the heat. But if you still put a halogen bulb inside, they get 450, some some crazy numbers in terms of temperature. So you want to make sure you have a place for that heat to dissipate. And then you foam over that foam box. So you, you build a box out of foil-faced foam sheet, tape it together, insert that, seal it, and then you blow foam around that, and then you can insulate with blown-in insulation cellulose or fiberglass. That's exactly what Linda's did to our house. Well, that's the perfect thing to do yeah. because Linda's knows what they're doing. And it, it really works. Good to see you, Barry. Pleasure to if be I in your company. If I didn't see you until Christmas, Merry Christmas to Thank you. Thank you, sir. Family. Fantastic. Yeah. But I hope to see you soon. Love it.